This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The new film, Top Gun Maverick, is breaking box office records and has already become the highest grossing film of actor Tom Cruise's career, raking in $86 million over last weekend alone. Top Gun Maverick, which is a sequel to the 1986 classic, has received highest ratings from critics and audiences. But the new film was made in close conjunction with the U.S. military. This is hardly surprising given that the film is set within the military and requires generous use of massive military hardware that only the Pentagon could provide. My guest Roger Stahl wrote a recent op-ed in the LA Times saying, quote, Americans should have a right to know the extent of the military's influence on the shows and films they consume. Stahl is the director of a new documentary available via the Media Education Foundation. It's called Theaters of War, How the Pentagon and CIA Took Hollywood. He's also a professor of communication studies at the University of Georgia. Welcome to the program, Roger. Thanks for having me, Sonali. So first, let's talk about the film Top Gun itself before we get into the broader issue of how the Pentagon affects films in Hollywood. It is a very glamorous pro-military film, right? Just watching the trailer, it's hard not to get excited about the the way in which people who are in the military interact with one another, and of course the very big toys that they get to play with. And that's the point, right? Sure, it's uh, it's glamorous. It's also a little bit silly, it's nostalgic. I laughed and cried, I enjoyed it very much. So it's a great Hollywood film, it's extremely seductive. Uh, of course, the, the military is, is very interested in working with producers like Jerry Bruckheimer on films like this for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is recruiting. Um, you know, uh, the, the Navy and the Air Force have, have missed the recruitment quotas as of late. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a way for them to, you know, use a, a, a very seductive medium in order to bring those numbers up. Hmm. Uh, so you watched the film. I have to confess that I did not watch it. So uh, when watching the film, what is the feeling that you get from the imagery of these massive machines of war, you know, the fighter jets um, and what they're capable of, the sheer power that they're capable of? Well, that's, that's one of the things uh, that they're after in films like Top Gun Maverick or any other military supported venture. Uh, they're, they're interested in glamorizing the weapons. In this case, it's the F-A-18, uh, which is the Navy's signature weapon, the, uh, the, the, the machine that glides gracefully off the aircraft carrier. And, and of course, they're interested in sort of giving a bigger picture of the Navy and its capabilities. Um, I just spoke to, you know, uh, recently, I spoke to uh, an ex-military person uh, about this film, and they they said, you know, in addition to all the other things that you're probably interested in and, and want to mention on interviews like this and others, uh, Roger, you should really, you know, uh, also think about the the way that the Navy is positioning, you know, the fighter pilot as an alternative to, say, cruise missiles. So, you know, there's kind of these hmm. sort of interagency competitions that are going on here. And if, if you saw the film, you know, the kind of the kind of uh, mission that these fighter pilots are on is one that could easily be accomplished through a series of you know, cruise missile strikes, but they use these fighter pilots instead. And you know, so it's not only an argument for the continued funding of these weapon systems and forging emotional connections between 
um, the average citizen and these weapon systems so that we don't object the next time the, the Pentagon uh, defense appropriations budget uh, goes up in front of Congress. Uh, the the Navy is, you know, trying to position, you know, the the platform itself, the the fighter pilots, the F-18s and the, uh, the naval aircraft carriers as being superior to other forms of, you know, strike capabilities. So how easy is it for a filmmaker in Hollywood to work with the military if they want a scene or two with a piece of, you know, huge military hardware that is very difficult or expensive to replicate in a studio? What do they have to do and what do they have to give the military in return? Well, this is kind of the meat of the matter. Um, this is what I call the deal that gets struck between producers who want to invoke the military in some way or feel it's necessary for the film and the interests of the military itself, they come together, they meet, and uh, you know both interests are satisfied by the deal that is struck. So if you're a producer who wants to do this kind of thing, you, you bring your script to one of the branch offices of the Navy, Air Force, or Army uh, in LA. Um, and there's a main office at the Pentagon, but there are three branch offices in LA. The Marines have their office in Camp Pendleton. And uh, you, you kind of plop the script down on the desk and you say, can I have access to some of these military goods? And they might include access to personnel as extras or access to bases and equipment like F-18, F-18 fighter jets, something like that. And uh, they, they take a look at the script and go over it with a fine tooth comb and not just the parts that invoke the military, but the whole thing, the whole story. And they usually return with three or four pages of script change suggestions. Sometimes they will uh, object to the script, the, the sort of entire storyline, and reject the script outright. But most of the time they come back with suggestions, and you as the producer or director decide to integrate these or make an argument that you don't want to. If the military is satisfied with the changes that you make, then they're going to go ahead with the project and give you the goods. Uh, you will sign a contract with them and then get started filming. But if, if not, uh, if you don't make those changes, then you're out of luck and you have to kind of scramble for other ways of representing the military hardware or change the script entirely. And sometimes, you know, we found over uh, the course of our uh, uh, survey of the available documents, we find that there are a lot of projects that just die if they don't get military help. Hmm. So tell me what you and your fellow researchers found about the extent of the partnership between Hollywood and the military. Uh, I suppose you and others thought that it was smaller than it actually was. I think everybody thought it was smaller. I mean, I, I've been working on this issue for about 15 years now, the kind of uh, the contours of what we call the military entertainment complex. And I just thought it was a small office at the Pentagon. They just did a, maybe a couple hundred films and everybody uh, that studies this, you know, it's a small group of maybe a couple dozen people who have done this over the years, uh, assume the same thing. So that, that was a scholarly consensus. And what we found in just the last five years, um, because a, a, a even smaller group, a subset of that uh, research group uh, has been doing hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands of Freedom of Information Act requests over the past five years. Uh, and uh, we've had additional archives open up as well uh, that have uh, made available about 30,000 pages of documents that you know me and four other people have on hand that we're closely attending to. Uh, we didn't have those before. And they suggest um, 
we can confirm, in fact, that uh, it's not just a couple hundred films uh, in the course of the 20 and 21st centuries, but um, now we can confirm that the military and CIA have been involved with, and this means they've had a contractual relationship with, a uh, supportive relationship with over 2,000 uh, films, or around 2,500. And that number keeps growing as we discover more documents. Wow. Um, and this number is you know, on the conservative side because many of those are TV shows that are multi-episodic. And if you count all the episodes, then the number is more like 10 or 11,000. So it's it, roughly you know, 10 times the number of projects that we previously assumed. It's a huge part of our entertainment diet. When you see films like Top Gun Maverick, and it's clear that the military had to have been involved to give them access to this hardware, do we know the extent to which the military has impacted the script of the film? In the case of Top Gun Maverick, you know, we've, we've put in many, many requests, and we've only gotten a few documents. The military has been very cagey and very evasive about this. Um, and because they, you know, the, the film hadn't come out yet. And they, uh, in a lot of instances, want to uh, kind of resist Freedom of Information Act requests on the grounds that they will reveal trade secrets and hurt the relationship between the military and, and uh, filmmakers and also compromise, uh, you know, compromise the business interests of those filmmakers. So we've we, we got just a few uh, choice, uh, heavily redacted documents from the military regarding Top Gun Maverick. And, and, you know, that's that's definitely part of the problem is that, you know, we've been doing this for a long time and, and the Pentagon has gotten kind of wise to the fact that there's a couple of researchers on the trail and they have increasingly rejected or redacted the kinds of requests that we've we've made in, in, in the last year or so. So we've got a lot of documents at first, uh, but now we're getting, you know, say a tranche of a thousand documents that are 100% redacted. Uh, which is a kind of funny thing to receive in, in the mail. Um, so they're getting wise to us. And, and we don't expect that we're going to get a lot more Freedom of Information Act responses that are going to yield useful documentation in the future. Um, and this, this is why, you know, I think it's necessary for the people, uh, you and I, just regular citizens, to understand the scope of this, or at least try to understand what we know from the documents that we have and and perhaps mm, do something about it, enact some legislation that will uh, force the hand of the public relations offices at the Pentagon and shows uh, that they are involved in. And, and, and you know, if I had my wish list in front of me, it would include releasing the documents that um, that contain references to script changes that were actually made. Right. Now, your original question is like, it was was how, how much do we know about actual script changes? We know uh, details of actual script changes for, I would say about two or 300 films at this point, um, based on the documentation that we have. And you know, when I referred earlier to three to four pages of script changes that are usually passed on to uh, the request for script changes passed on to the producers, uh, as these negotiations are happening, we have those documents. And so we have a really good sense at this point, uh, exactly the kinds of things that they are likely to ask um, and the kinds of things that they're likely to object to. Um, in the documents, they call them showstoppers. Uh, the things that if you don't change this, then we are not gonna support like your- Like deal breakers, basically. 
That's right. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's turn to your documentary, Theaters of War, how the Pentagon and CIA took Hollywood. And here's actually the trailer of the film. So say you're a producer and you want to make a war film. You would walk into the entertainment liaison office in downtown Los Angeles. You say, I want to film uh, an Air Force base, or I want an aircraft carrier, or I want some black hole helicopters, or whatever it is. And they would tell you straight away, give us your entire script. And we've worked with Mr. Bay here since Armageddon, if I'm not mistaken, and, uh, and hope to do more of the same. I've got a direct line to the Pentagon. <laughs> Some people probably would say, well, yeah, I've heard of this, like, you know, Top Gun, maybe Black Hawk Down, maybe some of the Marvel series. But what they don't know is how systematic this has been and how huge this operation has been. You can call it censorship, you can call it propaganda. It's, it's all of these things. Now these freedom of information requests that have been successful allow us to actually look at that list and it's stunning. What we've found is that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of products have been affected and are often rewritten at script level by the national security state in the United States. Do normal people know about that? No, of course they don't. And that is the trailer of a new documentary called Theatres of War, How the Pentagon and CIA Took Hollywood, made by my guest Roger Stahl, a professor of communication studies at the University of Georgia. Roger, tell me about this documentary. You, you're Obviously, it was made before Top Gun Maverick came out. There's a long history of the relationship between the U.S. military and Hollywood. What does this film dig into? It tries to uh, give an understanding of exactly what we know about this relationship between Hollywood and the military and, and provide a history of it, uh, provide a sense of uh, the kinds of script changes uh, historically that the Pentagon has asked for and how this, you know, verges on, even though it might not fit the actual definition of censorship or propaganda understood in the classical sense, verges on something like that. So, um, you know, it, it describes the nature of the deal. It describes how we have come to know in the, in the past five years, you know, the, the detective mystery story of how we uh, acquired the documents. And, uh, you know, interviews a number of academics who have studied this kind of thing, journalists, uh, Hollywood insiders, producers, um, and also a number of people who have worked previously in the Pentagon. Um, and, and, and mainly goes through the documents that we have acquired uh, in detail, uh, film by film, television show by and television can you give show us, too. Can you throw out some names of some well-known films that people might uh, recognize that you found the Pentagon had a hand in? Well, they're the obvious ones, you know, your Top Gun, Iron Man, Transformers. Uh, these films, you know, you know, have military hardware in the backgrounds and everyone will be able to recognize them and name them as you know having something to do with the pentagon um, but you know there are there are others that you know wouldn't no normally come to mind uh, necessarily i mean my, my favorite one in the film is, is godzilla in 2014 uh, because it's uh you know this is a franchise that's about nuclear bombs and uh you know since 1954 godzilla has been a, an allegory for the nuclear strike on japan 
and a critique of it. And, uh, you know, all the way through 1998, Godzilla was a critique of nuclear proliferation and the bomb. But by the time you get to 2014, the military is, is fully involved in this film. And, uh, you know, they, they've, they've got military hardware everywhere. They, you know, in the documents they proclaim. I mean, it's so ironic, <laughs> right? For, for a film that should have been about the warnings of militarism to basically partner with a military. Well, it even goes beyond, you know, just being ironic that they're partnering in the military, you know, the story completely flips mm. um, before it's a critique of the bomb. And now in 2014, uh, the bomb becomes a, a kind of co-hero in the film alongside the military and alongside Godzilla. So they use the bomb itself uh, to sort of blow up the bad, um, what are they called? Uh, you know, the bad, the bad monsters. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it supercharges Godzilla, nuclear power supercharges Godzilla to as I say in the film, fight the good fight, and uh, they use the bomb against the uh, the evil monsters. So you know the bomb goes from you know being a threat to uh, being one of the heroes, uh, and uh, you know the critique ultimately disappears. And my favorite little change, you know, we talk about the three to four pages of script changes that are made in in these films. Uh, you know, the military objects at one point to a speech that a Japanese character makes in the film about his grandfather surviving the bombing of Hiroshima. And they say, this is going to be a showstopper for us if you don't take it out. Uh, if this is an apology or critique of the military, uh, the, the uh, nuclear arsenal, then we're, we're just not going to have it in the film. And they end up taking it out and they replace it with this rather banal, generic speech about, you know, don't about how we shouldn't mess with nature. And uh, if we do, then this kind of thing, you know, the plot of the film um, is the result. Uh, so that, you know, they take out references, you know, critical references to the nuclear bomb and the nuclear arsenal. And, uh, um, you know, essentially flip the plot into, uh, you know, a celebration of the nuclear bomb instead. I mean, it's just really remarkable. And the, for you to say that the bomb basically became the second hero, it, it made me think about how these, you know, the fighter jets and all of these big um, pieces of military hardware that taxpayers pay for become co-stars in the film, right? Essentially, they, they are romanticized. They become enablers of freedom in the fantasy, Hollywood fantasy that the military is engaged in. Now, if the Pentagon makes these red lines say, saying that this is a deal breaker. Of course, Hollywood uh, filmmakers could walk away, but they don't. Hollywood filmmakers don't need to make pro-military films, but they choose to. The military is only a happy participant. Does all of this uh, um, you know, con uh, lead you to conclude that Hollywood is a willing participant in military PR? No one's forcing Hollywood. We don't live in an authoritarian state where the military forces our movie industry to make pro-military films. This is something that Hollywood thinks it can make money doing. And so it does it, but it, of course, does it slyly and secretly. And so it's a willing PR participant for the military, it seems. Yeah, we have to understand Hollywood, first and foremost, is not really a cultural institution, but an economic one that has cultural influence. And so when they're making the calculations, these financial calculations about how much they're going to put into a film and how much they expect to get out of it, you know, when 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 you're looking at cooperation with the military is, you know, potentially saving you three to four million dollars. 
uh, as you know, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer estimated that cooperation in the military saved a film like Black Hawk Down. And you know, he said also, we probably wouldn't have been able to make the film without it. Um, then you know, you're talking about a significant financial advantage to filmmakers that are going to make these deals with the military. And in fact, the industry understands this. Uh, in 1998, the, uh, you know, there's all these talks of uh, you know, a peace dividend and budget cuts to the military. And one of the things that was kind of on the chopping block at that point was uh, the uh, entertainment media office that does these deals with Hollywood. And uh, Jack Valenti, who was president of the Motion Picture Association of America at the time, this is the trade organization for, the, the, uh, the, for Hollywood, uh, went to Congress and, and did a bunch of lobbying and made sure that the office stayed online. And it did, it survived. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you have this kind of, as long as it remains uh, quasi secret, as long as there's not a lot of public objection to this uh, relationship, it remains a, a huge economic subsidy to Hollywood, a huge economic advantage to producers and directors. They don't want to get rid of it. Um, the only thing that's really threatening about it is, uh, is when people find out and object to the fact that, uh, you know, scripts are compromised and this is, you know, turning into a quasi propaganda operation. So finally, Roger, draw that line between films like Top Gun Maverick and this relationship between mili the military and Hollywood and actual war that the U.S. fights in many countries. I mean, there well, really hasn't been a war-free period in decades. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about 75 or 80 U.S. military uh, operations, interventions since World War II. I mean, we have uh, been continually at war since World War II, except for, I think it was 1977 and 1978. Uh, and, you know, the entertainment industry is a part of propping up this uh, permanent wartime economy. And, and certainly Top Gun and films like Top Gun Maverick more recently are, are, are involved in that. You know, friends of mine who have watched Top Gun Maverick say to me, you know, this, is, this doesn't seem, it doesn't smack of propaganda to me. It doesn't seem to have like a, a real hard line kind of message uh, that's easily detectable. But if you, if, you, if you kind of look at the plot, uh, you know, it's all about doing a weapons uh, strike overseas uh, on some other country that is uh, in the process of developing um, uh, nuclear capability. And, and the fact a, that it isn't of, an obvious propaganda film makes it really good propaganda, right? Yeah, I mean, fly, it, it literally flies on, well, not literally, it figuratively <laughs> flies under the radar. Um, and it does so really well um, that it's getting into our heads. Yeah. Uh, you know, the premise of the film is that we have the right to strike any country for any reason overseas, uh, so long as we cook up a, you know, a, a thinly veiled reason to do so. Um, you know, you, you know the, the, the plot of the film is that we're gonna strike this uranium enrichment facility somewhere. And, you know, it's obviously an allegory for our relationship with Iran. Um, so, you know, it's this, it's this tale of American exceptionalism, military exceptionalism, that we can strike any country we want overseas at any time. And that that is a given, that is a kind of taken for granted baseline of the film that goes unquestioned and uncriticized. And, uh, you know, you, just imagine if, uh, say, um, Iran were to make a film about doing that to Israel or doing that to the United States, we would object immediately uh, to that film as hardline propaganda. Um, uh, but because we're doing it in the United States, it's once again flies under the radar. Where can people find out more about your documentary, Theaters of War? 
Well, they can go to the film's landing site, which is theatersofwarmovie.com. Um, it's available uh, to colleges and universities mainly through the Canopy streaming service. So if you have connections there, you can watch it. Um, for retail, uh, regular folks who aren't in, involved with uh, university life, um, there's a, a Vimeo streaming opportunity um, that's available, uh, which my distributor doesn't normally offer, but they are going to offer in this case because they think this is something that, uh, you know, regular people ought to know about. Um, and that's where you can find the film. And we'll post a link to uh, the website, theatersofwarmovie.com. Thank you so much, Roger, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. My guest has been Roger Stahl. He is Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Georgia, Director of the new documentary, Theaters of War, How the Pentagon and CIA Took Hollywood. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.